If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, uh, Prime Minister is out selling his uh, distraction of a cabinet shuffle. And it's we talked about this yesterday and, and quite a bit. It's like it's the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy, the economy. Man, it, it's like uh, a new pair of socks, a new, a new vision. <laughs> uh, and many are asking, well, what about the last eight years? Uh, hello? Uh, this didn't just start. <clears throat> anyway. Um, uh, he's out uh, doing that and 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 going from place to place in the barbecue circuit and such. Uh, again, I found it fascinating that it was Christy Freeland, the Prime Minister, uh, Anita Annan, and I can't remember who else, uh, all using the words economy when they were talking and their economic team, their strong economic team. Uh, but no, uh, no chatter about um, the Paul Bernardo scenario or what happens now that Marco Mendicino is out of the way. Um, no chatter whatsoever about a public inquiry. Remember that? Remember there's a public inquiry coming? We're supposed to have a... Everybody remember that? Hello? Hello? Uh, or, Bernard, or the whole Paul Bernardo transfer uh, stuff? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's amazing that uh, you put a new coat of paint on and everybody's just supposed to forget about... Uh, where we are and the challenges that we're facing on a uh, day-to-day basis. Uh, also, uh, it's interesting as this is all happening, uh, many journals and such and, and health officials are calling for an inquiry, a public inquiry into the handling of COVID-19, which makes sense considering they say, you know what, one day we're going to get another one of these and you got to learn from what we did last time, both uh, good things and bad things and, and, and analyze this. And of course, um, we're not seeing a, a lot on that as well at this time. So, again, when we're talking about inquiries, you want to do one for uh, our, our handling of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Why not one into election interference? Uh, let's go there. Why not one into how Bernardo gets transferred? Let's uh, any any takers, anybody there, anybody in this brand new cabinet, which is the biggest 39. Um, and you know what? Everybody's trying to there's a couple of questions coming after this. And I brought up Anita Anand earlier. And she did just, I've never heard anything bad about this, this lady as far as um, anything she does politically, uh, the experience that she has, her negotiating ability. Uh, she's, she's very smart and, and very, very capable, a very capable minister, uh, which is great when you stop to ponder it, that uh, we have a member of parliament that, that is so. So uh, many are questioning why she got transferred out of defense where she was really starting to make some ground. And and then push back to Treasury and Bill Blair, who everybody thought was going to get turfed along with Mar- uh, Marco Mendicino, uh, he's in and he's at defense, which is kind of odd because there again there's were issues within the department about the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing, and now you know God bless Bill Blair, but he's now in charge of defense, and 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 Anita Anand just looks like she's uh, taken a bite of a sandwich that has gone bad. So, um, you know, and now, and I've read, and I'm trying to find it again, um, that, that, that some of the reason is, is that Anita was getting too much attention, that she was doing such a good job 
that uh, that was pulling attention away. Apparently, she's got leadership aspirations, and she was told by the brass to tone it down. So, much like uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, much like uh, uh, Jane Philpott, the self-described uh, feminist pres- uh, prime minister is all for it until those women start, uh, you know, shedding a, a, a bigger light than he does. So it seems that she's been told to calm down and to just wait your turn, so to speak. So, again, you know, the same thing happened with Jody Wilson-Raybould. Got a little too uh, a little too ambitious and didn't want to tow the company line. Ba-boom! Jane Philpott, same thing. So I guess he's a feminist prime minister as long as everybody does what he says. So it's fascinating to see what happened here in this portfolio and why why it did happen. Uh, and I guess we'll see over time. Uh, also, a citizenship minister now, which is very odd because nobody seems to know what a citizenship minister does. You might remember there was a couple of Trudeau governments ago. There was a minister of the middle class, which I found was fascinating. So, because um, uh, isn't that the majority? Isn't that everybody? You need a minister to tell you what everybody's thinking and doing and what their needs and wants are. You know, I mean, that's most of us. That's the majority is the middle class. Uh, but once again, the elite second generation prime minister has no idea what the middle class is about other than saying, we want to help those trying to join the middle class. Heaven forbid those, those of us that are here and just trying desperately to hang on to it. Uh, so anyway, it'll be fascinating to see how this all pans out and, um, you know, what happens to the Bernardo situation, what happens to the public inquiry and election interference. Uh, and and as, as we move forward, what is the direction of this new cabinet? Because it seems, as many have already said, uh, it's the same direction. It's just, um, you know, different faces. There really hasn't been a change in any of the uh, major players that, that, that actually call the shots. So going to be fascinating to see how this transpires over the course of time and uh, whether this is enough to take the prime minister from 10 points behind the conservatives and bridge that gap in some way and in some way uh, try to be prepared for the next election, we'll, whenever that is. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see how Canadians digest this, if it's another... Uh, you know, ripple in the water that doesn't really change the direction of everything or anything. Uh, we'll wait, uh, have to wait and see. We've talked a lot uh, about car theft on this show. And, you know, it, it still kind of surprises me that we can't do more about this. It just seems that now prices are baked into our insurance and our cars and such that nobody just seems to care. They write them off rather than stop it from happening let's bring in uh, elliot silverstein director of government relations caa insurance they've got a new poll out talking about canadians and their thoughts on the issue elliot thank you for the time hope you're well thank you for having me so elliot uh are, have we become complacent with this have, have we just realized hey you know what sooner or later your car is going to get stolen don't get upset about it well what we've seen in the in our survey response is that people are very much concerned about the issue the problem is, is that there's that false sense of security that too many Ontarians are not necessarily thinking it's going to happen to them. And that's what we need to change because we don't want a situation where people are going to uh, have that false sense of security and wake up one morning that their car is gone. What surprised you most about what our concerns are? Well, I mean, what we saw is that, you know, there's a real concentration in the greater Toronto area in terms of the 
the concern about the vehicle theft. It's actually less so in southwestern Ontario. We only saw about 10% uh, of, of respondents concerned about auto theft, but people are really not doing enough. And when I say that, you know, people are locking their cars, they're keeping valuables out of sight like they've typically done for many years. But using other tools like a steering wheel lock or a Faraday pouch to uh, block the radio frequency signals of your key fob, only about 6 to 8% uh, respectively are doing that right now. And those are immediate opportunities along with changing some of your daily behaviors to keep your car safer. You know, it's funny you talk about, and I heard somebody say this too, about the, you, you talked to a steering wheel locking device, or the old days called it the club. Those have been around forever. That is still one of the simplest ways to, to, to d- divert, I guess, uh, a thief. It really is, because when you think about it, and how a lot of these, these thieves are, are getting access to our cars in a matter of seconds, um, you know, being able to use the technology to do so, having that steering wheel column block, that requires them to spend many minutes to try and break that through. So if they are working really quickly to get access to a car, they may look at your car and say, you know what, we just don't have the time. It's not worth the effort. I'm going to move on. And while that might be somebody else's misfortune and we don't want that to happen either, certainly it does protect your car that it's there the next morning. All right. You said there's things that people can do and we're still making some silly mistakes. Give us the rundown. What should we be doing? So there's a number of things that people can do. If you have access to a garage and you're not using it right now, definitely look at putting your car in a garage. That's an immediate way to to keep your car safe. At at the same time, you know, doing some of those regular techniques, keeping your doors locked, things out of sight. If you have more than one vehicle in your residence, put the lesser valued vehicle closer to the boulevard. Doing that will make sure that your your car is, uh, your higher valued car is, is uh, more at risk, uh, sorry, less at risk to uh, to be uh, grabbed by a thief. Um, but, at, but at the same time, consider things like a steering wheel lock. Um, even think about putting an air tag in your car so that if it is stolen, you have an idea of where it may go. And then also keep your lighting and your cameras if you have them outside your home uh, up to date. Is there anything, and again, Elliot, this has been an age-old problem, obviously really increasing in the urban areas over the last several years and such, uh, organized crime, what have you. Is there more that the manufacturers can be doing here, or is this, you know, you hear it's a cat and mouse game. As soon as they do something, then, you know, the bad guy figures out another way around it. But is there anything that the car manufacturers can be doing to alleviate this problem? Absolutely. I mean, and it really is a two-part situation. So part of what we're talking about today is how drivers can keep their car safe and doing their part, but that's not exclusively where it begins and ends. It really does require support from the vehicle manufacturers because if it makes if it's harder to get access to your car and to steal it, that ends the problem right right there. Now the challenge is, is that manufacturing changes don't happen immediately. It takes time, it takes a couple of years, whatever it may be, even changing regulations about what is required in Canadian cars. All those things take time and we're certainly pushing that as a long-term response to this because while while drivers need to keep their cars safe today, we don't want these problems to continue on where it's going to end up costing consumers more and more each year because the, the issue just gets bigger and bigger every year. It just seems odd that if you can design a vehicle the way they do today, you can't design a way to keep it safe. What about the fob versus the key? Is the, Was the old days of the key, was that any more difficult? Was that any safer? Well, I mean, with the keys, I mean, they had there were different ways to break into the cars and get access back then. It wasn't it wasn't exactly foolproof. Part of the challenge what we have today is everything is is technology based. 
in one sense, it is convenience for people. They love those types of convenience tools. But, but at the same time, you know, there is that trade-off that right now um, it is causing some of the challenges we face uh, with, with cars being stolen. And that's why really having the, the ability to change some of the, the, the requirements by the vehicle manufacturers can, can allow consumers to enjoy that convenience, but also having their cars safe and not having to have that fear, you know, is, is tonight the night my car is going to get stolen or is this the parking lot that I'm in where it's going to get grabbed? We don't want that to happen. How much of this do you think is baked into our insurance costs and even the cost of the car? Well, I mean, you know, really what we're seeing right now is this growth. And what we were trying to do, and part of the reason why we're educating drivers right now, is we don't want to see it um, packaged into the cost of auto insurance. Certainly, Mm -hmm. if this continues going forward, you know, again, the the cost of these claims, again, if a car is stolen, you know, within the first couple of years of of, uh, the car being uh, uh, manufactured, I mean, we're talking a claim of tens of thousands of dollars. And that adds up because this is a very significant cost uh, to, to, to drivers, to insurance companies and so forth, and, and we don't want to see insurance rates rise as a result. That That is the worst-case scenario, and, that, and that's why CAA is coming out today and reminding people of what they can do, but also encouraging manufacturers to do their part as well. Uh, what cars are the big stealers? What is everybody looking for? So right now, it, it varies. You know, Right now, we're seeing a, a, a big uptake in some of the, the high-end uh, SUVs, we're seeing some of the the Land Rovers, the Range Rovers, uh, as well as the the F one fifties. Really, really uh, the, the pickup trucks in terms of the popularity of what's uh, what's been attractive for thieves. Um, but again, that's where we also say that those are the ones that are happening today. But six months from now, that that list may be very different. So even if your car is not on the list today, don't necessarily assume you don't have anything to do to to, to keep your car safe. Elliot Silverstein with us, Director, Government Relations, CAA Insurance, a new poll by CAA, talking about your thoughts on auto theft. And if we just did a little bit more, uh, we could help ourselves out a lot. Elliot, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. We've talked at length about uh, CSIS and getting information transferred from one level of government to the other. And, you know, just at least get everybody rowing in the same direction and on the same page. Pick your saying, pick your metaphor. Uh, But it just seems that uh, through various parts of these institutions and whether it's government or what have you, uh, the left hand just does not seem to know what the right hand is doing. In a recent situation, the B.C. Premier uh, trying to get information from CSIS, B.C. very much at the forefront of uh, interference by the Chinese Communist Party, the money laundering situation there, all of that. And they just can't get information. So let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, talk about that and uh, the recent uh, arrest charging of an RCMP officer, former RCMP officer, uh, with allegedly helping the Chinese Communist Party. Phil, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, hi, Scott. I love your analogies, by the way. I think they work really well. So um, let's start with the RCMP officer, former RCMP officer that was charged. What, what is your take on this? Well, you know, it's an interesting story because obviously it, it makes a lot of news because of his former position as RCMP. But I think there's um, a few things that need to be, I guess, emphasized here. One is that there's nothing to suggest that he was doing this while he was with the RCMP. So they didn't compromise the RCMP's investigations or practice or whatever while he was a member of the RCMP. It was quite some time after he retired. Nonetheless, you know, obviously, the fact that he was with the RCMP is probably part of the reason why the Chinese identified him. They want to learn more about how they do investigations, what the RCMP knows about China, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not a good news story for a force that you're well aware, Scott, has been suffering from a lack of reputational issues for years now. 
and it's one more mark against the RCMP, I think. So do you think these charges will stick? Because it seems there's a lot of gray area here uh, because the, the Canadian government was working with the Chinese government uh, way back when, is I guess as early as 2016, on all of this. Yeah, there's always a lot of gray area, I find, with espionage and foreign interference cases. So the cases I used to work on with cases with counterterrorism cases are much more black and white. Either you're planning a terrorist attack or you're not, you're spending money to a terrorist group or not. I think historically, espionage is harder to prove in a court of law in some ways because it's more sensitive in terms of the information that you're collecting and the way you collect it. I noticed that Mr. Miker is already owed on bail, which is pretty well standard for a Canadian court. So I'm not, you know, don't read too much into that. But we'll see how much uh, information is made available. Uh, you know, the defense is going to want full disclosure from the RCMP. And the problem with that is that you've got to be careful what you disclose in terms of sources and methods. And if you think that things are, are too sensitive to, to bring to an open court, uh, often cases are simply withdrawn because you don't want to take that risk. So I guess we'll have to wait and see until the court, uh, the, the trial begins and seeing exactly what, what, how two sides uh, fare in the, uh, in, in the ring. Uh, BC Premier EB is complaining that, and many have, that CSIS, obviously their, their client is the federal government. It's not the provincial government. Yet they are giving them bits and bites of stuff. Why, if you can give them stuff, give them stuff. If you can't, you can't. Why do we have this piecemeal effort going on? Uh, great question. And it's, it's been, a, um, I think, a, a thorn in our side since CSIS was created in 84. The problem is, is that, as you stated, normally security services deal with federal government. Now, the Germans have an interesting model. Each state in Germany has its own security service and also a centralized security service. So the office that would have provided the information to the BC Premier was the was the um, office in British Columbia. There is one in Vancouver. So they have a slight bit of autonomy, but when it comes time to uh, secret intelligence, unless you have what's called a need-to-know and a requisite security clearance, we can't tell you a lot of things. We can give you generalizations, but we can't go into details. But there's no reason why we can't. And we can certainly bring in provincial officials. Uh, we can give them security clearances, make them aware of how to protect the information. And, you know, I think the problem is, as you stated, the BC Premier has a, has a need to know because obviously his province is involved. I think there are ways of doing this. So I'm hoping that the, the feds look at this and say, can we, can we somehow make this intelligence picture a little easier to use? Is is the government doing anything or enough to fix this, to try to unify all of this? No. Um, I have an op-ed piece, if you, if you will, Scott, in, in post media as of yesterday. One of the problems we have in Canada is we have a very poor intelligence culture. And what I mean by that is that most officials have no idea how intelligence works, and they don't value it. We certainly saw with the federal government with the Chinese stuff, they ignored it for decades. Then they said that thesis was racist for using it in the first place. So until yes. we improve our intelligence culture, I don't care how many government agencies think that something needs to be done. They're simply incompetent because they don't understand how intelligence works. Uh, uh, many have said that the, um, the RCMP needs to be revamped more like the FBI. Is there any way we can, uh, find common ground between all of these agencies so they can share information? It seems odd we're getting to crisis situations because the left hand doesn't know what the right is doing. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that, but I'd be a little wary about saying, well, just make the RCMP into the FBI. Different countries, different realities, different histories. Uh, different reporting mechanisms, different relationships. You know, CSIS came out of the RCMP, Scott, back in 84, when it was decided that we wanted mm-hmm. a, a civilian security service versus a police security service. Many countries do it differently. The Scandinavians combine police with security all the time. 
I don't know. I, I think to me, just saying make the RCP more of the FBI is a little simplistic. But you're right. We have to get you know learn to play together better. We have to you know all get along in the sandbox. And, and the biggest thing is that we have to share information, and more importantly, the recipients, i.e., the federal government, in most cases, has to understand what the intelligence means and, and be able to use it. So it's complicated. But you know, when you have a lack of intelligence culture to start with, uh, the hill is that much harder uh, higher to climb. I think. It seems there's more and more questions and, and little answers, um, and, and it doesn't seem that this seems to be a top priority for the government. I mean, you know, we were talking public inquiry about election interference a few months ago, and now we've had a cabinet shuffle. Is that even going to come up again? Um, uh, uh, is it because if we do these sorts of investigations, we'll implicate too many people, too many of the elite? Now you're conspiracy theorist, Scott? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It just seems to me, it seems to me, Phil, and let me explain where I'm coming from. It just seems to me that this seems really obvious, that we have to get to the bottom of it, and the government just doesn't seem real keen on undoing it. You're right, and part of it's the lack of culture I already referred to. Part of it is because it's embarrassing. They want to kick this can down the road and hope that Canadians will forget about it. I mean, we're in late July now, early August. It's kind of summer season across the country. People going camping, going to the cottages, going fishing, whatever. I think the government just kind of hopes it all just fades away until the next crisis comes. Unfortunately, um, we just don't have governments. And that's a bold political stripes, by the way. It's not just the liberals. The conservatives are just as mm-hmm. bad under, in their harper. They just don't want to deal with this stuff. So they, they know that Canadians don't really care. And that's, we'll move on to the next story. So that's unfortunately, I, I wish there was an easy solution. There is a solution. Listen to your security services and when they're telling you something. But that day is far off, unfortunately. Uh, are your thoughts on changes in the defense minister? Does how, how much of a weight does that carry? I don't think it carries anything whatsoever. I, you know, I, I hate to be pessimist, Scott. I tend to be, I try to be an optimist, but you're talking politicians for the most part with zero experience in the portfolios that they've assumed. So I <laughs> yeah. don't think there's any being a change in defense. It was, I mean, this person didn't work in defense, as far as I know. It's practitioners versus politicians. I'm a practitioner by by in my training kind of thing. It's just it's the merry-go-round of ministers. I don't think, I don't expect any major changes, unfortunately. Phil Gursky with us, President Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, former CSIS analyst, uh, updating us on where we are. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. We'll talk soon. Some wording in the law, and you know, if you if you believe, um, well, the federal conservatives. Uh, say that the Canadian that Canadians angry over Paul Bernardo's move to a medium security prison have a liberal government law to blame. Uh, Pierre Polyever po- uh, points out to a bill passed in 2019 uh, amending the law governing Canada's prisons to stipulate inmates should be held in the quote least restrictive environment. Uh, the liberal legislation reversed the change Conservatives made seven years earlier, restoring language that had been there. From the beginning, uh, least restrictive environment. What does that all mean? Uh, let's bring in Ari Goldkind, a Toronto criminal lawyer, to uh, find out more. Ari, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well. Good to be on with you. So, Ari, what's what, what does least restrictive environment mean, and what's the objective behind it? So, there's a number of components to this. Let's get to that in a moment. But you've got to remember the day after a big cabinet shuffle. If this doesn't tell you how useless the outgoing uh, public safety minister was, Marco Mendocino, Mm. who you'll remember, came out with his fake bellyaching about Bernardo being moved when it's liberal government legislation that reintroduced the term 
least restrictive. If that doesn't tell you that the inmates are running the asylum, that, as I think as best as I can put it, and remember, he was a former prosecutor. He's now gone, thankfully. We'll give the new guy a chance. But it's important that we have that context for the politics. For the least restrictive part, now, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with this just yet, but remember, the institution that we're talking about is called Corrections Canada. It's not called Tar and Feather Canada. It's not called String You Up by the Gallows Canada. The idea is to correct behavior. And one of the theories in this kind of setting is that you don't want to keep people locked up in segregation. You don't want to keep people locked up 23 and a half hours a day because remember, this is the key. Most of them will get out. Most people in the penitentiary are not serving life sentences. So the idea is, is that you're always orienting them or reorienting them with increased and gradual freedoms with a view to their release date or parole. For a guy like Bernardo, which is a different fish, Canada's most notorious piece of garbage, you obviously have a conservative government that years ago said, no, let's use words like necessary or necessary restrictions. And the liberals came along and said, no, that doesn't work. Now, whether you agree with some people saying today he would have been moved no matter what, probably, and he would have been moved 25 years ago. By the way, I've read the 85-page report. Um, it really is a very interesting discussion that I think people are trying to get into the nitty-gritty. The Corrections Canada Department never made a mistake moving him to Quebec. How they moved him, that they didn't tell the French and Mahaffey families, that Mendocino threw his uh, staff under the bus, even though they knew two months earlier. This was a political hack job, but the Corrections Canada Service did follow the least restrictive route possible. They overrode, by the way, just to make this clear, they overrode the fact that 25, 30 years ago, he could have been moved. That's really, really important. But that's the whole premise and belief behind corrections, which is to rehabilitate people who are likely going to come back out and make them a better citizen. Roll your eyes or not, that's the theory. I completely understand that, Ari. And, you know, I understand even how could there could be debates around least restrictive environment for the reasons that you just mentioned. Absolutely agree. However, uh, not although we're all equal, we're not all the same, and not all the cases are the same. So how can you have a one-size-fits-all apply to Paul Bernardo? Well, they, that's the thing. They haven't. So here's the thing that most people don't know unless you've read the 85-page report and decided to put yourself to sleep, which is he was approved to be moved to Quebec or another similar institution 25, 30 years ago. But because, as you know, he couldn't integrate with other inmates, what that means is he would have been shanked or killed if he was with other inmates. They overrode the recommendation. And there is a confusion in the public. And again, I understand it, by the way. I'm not saying I don't understand it. There's a confusion in the public that we all want him to serve hard time or die in jail. Well, then get Parliament to have a debate to go back to capital punishment or changing the law to say it should be the hardest of time. But so long as you have public safety, this is the key to my answer. As long as he's not getting out, as long as he's not a flight or escape risk, as long as he's not a risk to other inmates, the mandate of Corrections Canada is to correct behavior. It is not to satiate bloodlust. I have yeah. bloodlust. You have bloodlust. 
Your listeners have bloodlust, but that's the reason we have arm's length bureaucracies in a country that pretends, at least in some ways, to be civil. So I understand the angst and the animosity to this decision, but it was literally followed to the core, except for, as I said, not telling the victims' families until the day of, and Mendocino screwing up totally. Uh, Will the least restrictive environment be amended in any way? And another question to that, we've only got a short period of time here, Ari, is that um, this was he was kept where he was because of his own safety. They were worried he was going to get, you know, uh, assaulted by the other inmates. Is he safer now? I think he is. I think they wouldn't have put him there if they thought we're going to raid a headline that somebody took him out like that Larry Nasser, that doctor in the States that got stabbed. Mm -hmm. People celebrate that should never be celebrated. We're not butchers. We don't do that in jails. If you want to do that, go somewhere, you know, into the Mideast where they stone women who look the wrong way or wear the wrong clothes. That's not Mm. us. So I don't think for a second they would have moved him to Quebec if they felt somebody would uh, take a liberty to him and uh, basically end his life in a non-judicial way, if I could put it that way. Ari Goldkind with us, Toronto criminal lawyer, explaining least restrictive environment and the Paul Bernardo transfer. Ari, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Great to be with you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We remember the global pandemic. Honestly, I think this is a life-changing experience. It's like the Industrial Revolution, the techno- uh, Technological Revolution. Uh, the world is is going to change. And you think it's different now? Wait a couple of years from now. It will change again as we adjust to this new world. Uh, that we are out, that we are now living in in a post COVID nineteen environment. A panel of experts made further uh, further calls for an independent inquiry into Canada's COVID nineteen response, stressing that the country's pandemic response must be reviewed before it is tested again. Which to me is the biggest reason to do this. Why wouldn't you? Uh, because experts say that could very easily happen again. Let's bring in Colleen Flood, Dean of the Faculty of Law, Queen's University, one of the experts who authored the paper calling for an inquiry, and is with us now. Colleen, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm very well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Colleen, why wouldn't we have an inquiry? It just seems like a no-brainer, considering this was a worldwide event. Yeah, well, I think, to me, it, it, it's clearly needed. Uh, I think there is a, a sense of uh, from a lot of folks that you know we, they just want to move on and move past this. Um, but if we can't learn from our experiences here and we can't reflect on what has happened and what is, and to some extent is still happening, you know there there is, as you say, I think really no way that we can better prepare for future public health threats and and pandemics. And you know I, I think. Part of the kind of worry here is that we'll just have a, uh, you know, another inquiry or a couple of inquiries, and then nothing much will change. So, mm. uh, whatever we do, we have to make sure that um, it's very directional and and focused on, you know, actionable things that uh, federal and provincial and municipal governments will do to help prepare us for the next pandemic. And, um, you know, not. We can't sort of always just think it's, it's not about finger pointing or blaming anybody because, you know, no. everybody made mistakes, you know, but there yeah, were successes yeah. as well. So we want to focus on the success and learn from our mistakes. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I think maybe that may be a little of the reticence too that 
it would just devolve into uh, finger pointing. You know, I don't think anybody in the end, considering, I think we're just all relieved to be where we are at this point. Um, um, but you, you bring up a valid point about fatigue. I mean, my goodness, we're, it just, it, it literally gripped the world for three years. Um, do you think the fatigue, do you think the fatigue will prevent us from at least coming up with a set of guidelines or some policy changes? I mean, will there be, all right, here is Global Pandemic 101, that this is what we've learned from. Because I remember way back when, people saying, you know, well, we haven't experienced this before. We don't know what's going on. Well, at least now we can go back and look at something. Well, I hope that it doesn't stop us doing that. I think, um, you know, various jurisdictions at at some point will... um, We'll move to do this kind of analysis and retrospective. I I think it's better if you know it's it's done as a kind of concerted whole of government plan. Um, bits and pieces will be done by individual researchers, uh, but I do think like looking at the whole of the response from federal, provincial, and municipal governments um, would really help us prepare and and think about particularly in Canada. You know the alignment of our different layers of government and responsibilities because that's a big challenge for us here you know that other countries don't have to contend with so you know that alignment coordination being able to pivot as they say uh, between Mm -hmm. all these you know often not always working together uh, levels of government to be able to turn that around when we need to um, is essential here in in in, uh, Canada. Remember the word pivot? My goodness, Colleen, how many times did we hear that during the uh, pandemic? I think yeah. one, I think one good thing to come out of this. Then. Yeah, I think one great thing to come out of this was many were amazed at how quickly we did come up with a vaccine, how the rest mm-hmm. of the world all came together and did share information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's right. And, and many people, uh, many great people, many healthcare providers, many public officials, many people in the private sector, you know, all uh, rolled up their sleeves and did the very, very best they could in very, very difficult circumstances. And, you know, and that's part of what this kind of inquiry should be about is also a bit of celebration for what we did do right and and how well we were able to quote-unquote pivot, you know. So there's, there's a lot of good in what happened as well. So we should celebrate that. But, you know, we really do need to be better prepared for other public health threats that may emerge. Year over year, they uh, I, I teach a course around law and, and public health and pandemics, you know, pre-COVID, and they had been predicting um, a flu pandemic for 20 or 30 years. But you know, I would mm. say to my students at the end, you know, we're, we're not really prepared for it, even though it has been predicted. So we didn't get a flu pandemic. We got a pandemic, but um, the same is true, you know, for what is coming. And we know that with um, climate change and uh, uh, population growth and the proximity between uh, humans and the animals that we work with and eat and so on, that zoonotic transfers, that's a transfer from animals to humans of Mm -hmm. new pathogens will only increase, you know, and that's what SARS-CoV-2 was. So these kinds of things have to be kept in mind. Um, and with globalization and travel, you know, the, um, a, a new threat can, you know, very quickly be on a plane and, and be in Canada. So we have to be ready for that, ready to 
operationalize and move if we have to. Now, hopefully we won't, hopefully we can hit much of this off in, at the past, but we need to be ready. Colleen Flood with us, Dean of Faculty of Law, Queen's University, one of the experts who authored the paper calling for an inquiry into uh, Canada's COVID-19 response and what we can learn from it for the next time. Colleen, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. You too. Bye-bye. It's Hamilton Today, 900 CHML in Hamilton. We're coming back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We talked about the uh, recent situation in regard to a Toronto District School Board principal who took his own life, and Ontario's education minister says his staff will review the allegations that the principal who died by suicide months after launching a lawsuit against the board for allegedly failing to support him when he was accused of racism during a professional training session, which was supposed to help all of that. Uh, Lecce calls these uh, allegations serious and disturbing and has uh, asked the staff to look into uh, what had happened and how we move forward. This is just one of many situations, and you don't want to paint all boards with the same brush, but we can think of the York board in uh, York Region who didn't uh, send out memos. Don't talk about the Queen's funeral. Don't use this teaching moment. Don't play the song. Don't do anything. Don't even mention it because it will traumatize the students. Forget the historic teaching moment. Uh, their Catholic board having the same issues uh, with pride. Peel, the, it had to be taken over by the province. They were having so many issues. The Halton board, we certainly know that, with the teacher with the prosthetic breasts. And it's making a lot of people ask, what the heck is going on? And who is controlling uh, this group of people, these groups of people that seem to be having a tremendous amount of influence over our kids? Larry Deany with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, former school principal. Larry, uh, I'll try to stick on the topic here, and we'll actually talk about what we suggested we were going to talk about. What are your thoughts? Because we talked about the Halton situation before. Is there some sort of guideline or some sort of standard that needs to be drawn up here so we make sure that all the school boards are on the same page and not taken off in their own little uh, agenda? Well, gosh, that's such a complicated question, Scott. I, l- let me say this, that, that of course, I, I was in education. As you said, I was principal of a number of high schools in the Halton Board of Education uh, for many, many years, almost 30 years uh, in education, about half of that time in administration. Uh, so uh, I'd like to think that even today, in spite of all of these distractions, and some of them are more serious than others, I'd like to think that in the classroom with teachers and students, good things are still happening. In fact, I've got kids in school. I've got relatives who are teachers. I've got some relatives who are principals of school. My own brother was a director of education, retired for a number of years now. So I still keep in touch and hear their stories. And I do know that good things are happening in the classroom with kids. But there are these major issues at the governance level where I think we're being let down. I think I think uh, that that for some reason at the governance level, uh, school boards have been captivated um, uh, by by uh, these major distractions that take us away from educating kids into the political realm, into uh, uh, virtue signaling in some cases, uh, mm. and into, in other cases, perhaps um, uh, forgetting what the, the mandate is and accommodating individuals uh, with their peculiarities, and I'm thinking specifically of the situation in Halton that you and I have talked about a number of times, uh, rather than worrying about the bigger picture around kids 
Uh, they, they worry more about someone's peculiar interest uh, in, in projecting a certain image. And that, and that is a huge distraction. The issue that you started with in terms of uh, the, the suicide, the apparent suicide by that principal uh, who felt demeaned uh, in front of his colleagues um, is a whole different story. I happen to know um, the individual that, that was making the, uh, the, the, the speech, the presentation, um, and is mentioned in that story. I, 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 I met her when I was chair of the Children's Aid Society in Toronto and uh, was part of a presentation that she made, which I must say was an excellent presentation on inclusion, on, on being sensitive to, uh, to other cultures. Uh, and um, I happened to have lunch with that individual as well in Hamilton uh, as she was migrating to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, strengthen her consultancy work around equity and inclusion. So I feel I feel um, compelled to say that that I was very impressed with this person, although I am disturbed by what I read in in the allegations uh, that have been made, um, and of course no one wants to see anyone, especially uh, a valued member of the educational community, uh, be so desperate as to take his own life, which apparently is what is alleged to have taken place. So um, I, I, I also, Scott, hear stories from people who are in education today um, at, the, at the administrative end, uh, not at the classroom end, but at the administrative end, where the governance of the school board, the trustees, some of whom have been elected uh, because they want to drive a single agenda rather than an educational agenda, um, and uh, directors of education <clears throat> who seem to have more of expertise around inclusion, uh, which is not a bad thing at all, but at the exclusion of some educational bona fides, um, and that is not a good balance to have, um, who are themselves leading school boards, perhaps, and reacting to single agenda trustees that, that do not really care for the welfare of, uh, of the entire student body, but simply are interested in their own agenda. And we've seen examples of that, even here in Hamilton, when the school board voted uh, to eliminate police from their schools. Police who are there as a hmm. resource for teachers are not allowed to be in a school. I mean, that is beyond the pale as far as I'm concerned. And yeah. that was all because um, 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 apparently some individuals uh, are frightened by the police. So rather than making people... Um, more comfortable with a, a presence, and and also, by the way, making sure that the police do not present just a challenging, frightening uh, image to all students, uh, mm -hmm. but are perceived as being helpful by all students. Rather than worrying about that, they excluded them, and and that is very unfortunate. So we've seen that um, in um, in um, in in our own school board and local school boards. I'll bet you if you were to look at the uh, credentials of the directors of education in all of our local school boards, I'll bet you that at the top of their expertise list uh, is the whole question of, uh, of inclusion rather than educational excellence. Uh, and again, um, because, you know, this, I don't want to be misconstrued here, uh, inclusion is important, making sure that we cater to all students, especially those who have been marginalized uh, historically. At making sure that they they have opportunities to succeed, extremely important, uh, extremely important to make sure that all students succeed. 
uh, but when you set up camps and when you uh, choose this direction over that direction that might exclude other individuals, I think that would be unfortunate. There, so that's what, a mouthful, but there you go. Uh, and we've only got about a minute left, Larry. What what can the education minister do? What should the ed- education well, minister do? Well, you know, I, unfortunately, he's going through the motions and he's doing what he thinks he needs to do in terms of having, uh, um, having uh, you know, his staff uh, investigate and then report back to him. That That's just kicking the ball down down the road. But let me say that, that I don't think it's up to the education minister. Uh, their job at the province is to provide resources and a framework for education um, for then school boards to implement. I think parents need to take a more active role. Mm. Parents need to elect trustees that are representative of, of students generally and not just single agenda trustees. And I think parents also need to react when things are going awry in school boards. And I cite again the example of the exclusion of, of the police. I'll bet you most parents were shocked by that. But, you know, parents uh, look at their own child and they say, as long as he or she is okay, mm. as long as we're not affected, I'm not going to make waves. Teachers as well. I know I've spoken to teachers who are concerned about the direction at the governance level, but they too are frozen in place because what can they say? They don't want to get in trouble with, with their bosses, uh, although I think there is some resentment there as well in terms of how things are being handled at the governance level. Larry Deany with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and here, former high school principal, talking about the board situation in Ontario and what we can do to make it at least a little bit more consistent. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Uh, let's talk about AI. It's not even really me. I'm already on holidays. <laughs> I'm on a dock right now. Um, uh, let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Reason being, uh, one of the world's leading voices spoke to the U.S. Senate and gave warnings. We've heard this before about the realities of artificial intelligence, where it's going. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. I promise you, Scott, I am. This is actually me. I'm not at the dock just yet. Uh, it is human, Carmi. I know. Uh, if I can't, if I, if I can't pinch you, Carmi, I'm just not sure it's even you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I so. promise you, you'll always be allowed to. Um, yeah, no, this is, this is no surprise. It, it's almost like your, his name is Yeshua Benjo. He's kind of like the, kind of like the rock star AI researcher in Canada. He leads uh, Mila, which is like the, the AI Institute in, in uh, Quebec and Montreal. He's a prof at the uh, Université de Montréal. He's, he won the Turing Award uh, in 2018, which is basically like the Nobel Prize for computing. Um, so like he is like he is as, as good as it gets. And he's been banging that drum for most of the year. He was uh, one of the, the signatories of that huge letter, that open letter about the risks of AI. He has been giving interviews and he's been speaking in front of uh, committees like this Senate subcommittee. Uh, on privacy, technology, and the law. So, you know, this isn't anything new, uh, but it can, you know, it's it's to an even higher audience because we do know that in the U.S., they are, uh, the White House just issued guidelines. Uh, we know that big tech companies are stepping forward. We, things are starting to happen. In the European Union, their, EI, their EU AI Act is moving ahead as well. Canada has AI legislation pending under Bill C-27, and uh, Yeshua Banjo has been saying we need to get that sort of done, taken care of, even if it isn't perfect. So, steps along the way. Nothing surprising here because this echoes what he's been saying all along. Uh, but what changes here is, first of all, he's talking to Americans now, not just Canadians. 
And the fact is, is that uh, the clock is ticking, right? The research is racing ahead and there is a limited window of opportunity within, within which we can get our act together and start having the right kinds of rules and what they call guardrails in place to ensure we don't fall behind before AI kind of goes critical, goes, you know, reaches that point where it's close to being able to replicate human thought. We're not quite there yet, but we will be. Okay, I'm going to throw two questions out and you out, out out at you, and you can answer how you wish. Um, mm. So this this guy is trying to explain this to the U.S. Senate. How does one explain this to a group who get their kids to tell them what TikTok is? That's the first question. <laughs> the second question is, how do you legislate something that you really don't know where it's going? That is the problem. Is that so? First of all. Um, you know, the, the answer is, and every time there is a, a committee hearing, either on Capitol Hill in the U.S. or Parliament Hill here in Canada, I, I, I palm, you know, I, 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 I give my head a shake because when you listen to the kinds of questions that are being asked, you listen to the kinds of exchanges that are happening, it is patently obvious that our elected officials are woefully ill-equipped to deal with this. They, yeah. they can't even master their laptop or their smartphone, let alone artificial intelligence. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, and and so I think I think the the answer to that is not trying to teach them, it's trying to teach us. In other words, we're the electors, and so we as citizens need to make that a priority every time we vote for somebody. And so it isn't going to change tomorrow, but long term, you know, the next election, federal election, is in two years. That should be front and center uh, when we are meeting candidates on our doorsteps. And if they can't answer that. And if we can't have an intelligent conversation with them about their plans for AI, then guess what? We vote for someone else. And so I think it starts with us. And then two is, you know, how do you legislate something that is kind of a moving target? Because, you know, it, we don't even know how it's going to evolve. Uh, it's how we've, we've legislated technology in the first place. We don't legislate so much the technology. We legislate the impact of that technology on society. And we ensure that we have the right sort of apparatus, the right assets, the right people, the right organizations, committees, teams, whatever, in place to deal with whatever comes up as the technology evolves. So don't legislate for the technology, legislate for the category and make sure that you have the right resources in place as well as the right definitions. So for example, how do we agree what artificial intelligence is? Well, let's define it in the legislation uh, and then the technology will evolve on its own. So we don't have to, it doesn't have to be in lockstep with the technology, but it has to at least recognize that this is the roadmap that it's on um, and that it will evolve over time. But we've got to have something better than nothing. And we cannot afford to sort of sit there, wait until it's perfect before we enact it into law. It's okay to have imperfect legislation. We can tweak it as we go along. So in other words, um, you can't use it for this or you can't replicate that. You can do this. You can't do that. And then whatever way, as you said, you deal with it as you go. Exactly. Base it on the use case, not the technology, the impact right. to society, which isn't going to change over time. We understand how it's going to impact society. We understand that it could potentially uh, you replace entire swaths of jobs. And, and you know, let's be clear, AI is not the first technology that has done that. And yeah. it, truth be told, you, if you look at legislation in the past, we've never really dealt with the impact of technology. So this may be our opportunity to do that and come up with not just better legislation, but a better way to craft tech-centric legislation. I think we can do it. I think we just have to be creative enough. And in order, in order to, do, to do that, we've got to have people who speak that language. And that, again, comes back to you and me in the ballot box.
Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, Life with AI. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. He is here now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well and in a great mood. Well, Scott, I'm in a great mood because, well, you're going to make me talk about the cabin shuffle one last time. But because it's you, I'll do it perhaps. <laughs> All right. Uh, one last time for you. Your thoughts on the uh, shuffle. Um, at the end of the day, we're, we're hearing a lot of questions about Anita Anand and her switch from uh, defense to treasury. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, on the shuffle, shuffle in general, I think where the prime minister was right, he may have a renewed team and renewed voices. But is that going to be enough to make a difference in terms of the dwindling poll numbers? Because the message isn't new uh, or no sense that it, it will be new at this point. And that was a lot of the criticism that came uh, yesterday. As for the Anita Anand appointment, it, look, you can view it two ways. She could be given a role where she is going to talk about the economy and be a more uh, effective communicator than Krishia Freeland is. But that's not the role normally. Now, there have been some exceptions uh, that the Treasury Board minister plays. The Treasury Board minister is kind of like the chief operating officer of government. And if you know any chief operating officers of businesses or big organizations, they usually are behind the scenes making sure everything works. Now, that's important, but for a government that lacks a credible messenger on the economic front on a consistent basis, is that what they need? Uh, you know, many thought uh, before all of this happened, Bill Blair was in the same sentence as Marco Mendicino. Many thought that yeah. he would get ousted as well, and boom, he gets promoted. Yeah, it's a strange one because there's also, you know, look, um, there's uh, an organization going through cultural change. Uh, is Bill Blair the right leader for cultural change, given his history with the Metro Toronto Police, some of which was very good. But you people will say in the latter years there were problems that weren't addressed. Uh, equally, because he comes from that Metro Toronto policing background, I don't know how much you know about how the military and police forces get along, but they don't tend to like to be led by somebody who's not from their sphere. So that will be a big cultural challenge for Chief Blair going over there. And one, you know, one imagines that's not another problem the Liberal government wants. Uh, we'd heard reports, read reports that uh, Anita Anand was told to tone it down. She has leadership aspirations. Was she taking the spotlight away from the prime minister? I don't know. That all sort of started to pop up the other day. I mean, Look, uh, is, is there political jealousy? Absolutely. Uh, is there um, a sense that she could be a leadership contender? Absolutely. She's been one of the most competent ministers of the Trudeau yeah. government. Yeah. Uh, but I, I didn't get the sense she was overtly campaigning. And equally, I mean, she was the defense minister, so she was overseas a lot. She was at international meetings. She was dealing with the war in the Ukraine. So, you know, she wasn't cashing in at home where you need to cash in on uh, some of the work that she was doing. So it appeared from my perspective. So why not keep her there? Because she's in a much lower profile position. I mean, if you're looking for people who, who want to change the message, why wouldn't you have her out front? 
Well, I guess we'll see. Look, you, is she really being put in a place where she's been, you know, scolded, if you will? Or are they going to use her as an unconventional Treasury board minister where she will speak? Hmm. The other thing, the other small angle in there, though not entirely small, is given the previous minister from around these parts, Mona Forte, had been the head of, of Treasury board during the big public sector strike. Um, and wasn't necessarily well-liked, though, to her credit, she did resolve the strike in the end. Is Anand there to send a message to the uh, public sector unions that they've heard them, they have a new leader, somebody who's well-respected, somebody who's known to be good with stakeholders? Why does all that matter? Well, seats in this city where I am today, Ottawa, and seats in places like Halifax and elsewhere where there are big pockets of public servants and the Liberal government doesn't want them too far offside because they want to hold those seats. So I don't know if there's some, you know, micro political management going on there. And that may be part of what the Anand appointment is about. What if this cabinet shuffle doesn't work? The poll numbers continue to slide uh, already 10 points behind the conservatives. Could we see a new leader? Many are saying, why are we uh, why aren't we changing the captain rather than the crew? Well, look, anything possible, but I, I think you will still find, and, and that's our poll, the abacus one you're talking about with the 10-point lead, the Leger that's come out, a 10-point lead for the Conservatives, Leger's come out today with a 9-point lead for the Conservatives, so we're effectively the same. Justin Trudeau still, though a more polarizing figure, obviously, than he was in 2015, is the best asset the Liberal Party has right now. Uh, but if they continue to dwindle in the polls, some people may take a different view on all of that. So important to remember, even in our poll, there's still 30, 33% of Canadians, a third of Canadians who aren't comfortable with the alternatives, and still 46%, I believe, of Canadians who consider voting liberal. So all is not lost, but uh, if the shuffle is the only thing that they got, they have, uh, that, that may turn out to be a loss. Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data, talking about the cabinet shuffle. One last time for Tim. Well, Thanks for the <laughs> Thank you, Tim. You have a great weekend. Okay, buddy. Take care. Bye. The shuffle uh, in the cabinet yesterday affected more than just Justin Trudeau's cabinet and us here in Canada. It means something to international relations, uh, particularly NATO. Interesting article uh, in the Globe and Mail, this by John Ibbotson, Trudeau's cabinet shuffle deals a blow to Canada's NATO defense promises. Uh, replacing Anita Anand with Bill Blair as defense minister reveals the hypocrisy of Justin Trudeau's promise at the recent NATO meetings to invest in Canada's military. So says the author. To talk more about all of this, Arl Brown is with us, professor of international relations, senior member, Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and with us now. Arl, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. Many in Canada are questioning uh, the the change at the defense minister uh, portfolio, uh, but obviously for different reasons. What are you hearing? How does this affect us on international relations? Are others paying attention to this? I'm sure they are. But the key question here is what change will take place? Because so far there has been very significant disappointment in Canada. Uh given that we have not met uh, the guideline and we're not even close to that guideline. And in the case of uh, Minister of Defense, who has left, Anita Anand, she was a very bright individual and an academic, a law, former law professor, uh, and uh, she certainly said all the right things about 
our international commitments. But at the same time, she was uh, someone who uh, engaged sometimes in kind of uh, a kind of accounting acrobatics to try to get around the fact that our defense spending was way, way too low. We mustn't forget that Canada has the largest territory of any state in NATO. We have the longest coastline of any state in NATO. And we have, by NATO standards, and NATO has a common standard for judging defense expenditures. And this is updated yearly. Uh, According to that, the 2023 estimate is that Canada has one of the lowest spendings uh, on defense as a percentage of the uh, GDP. Eleven countries are meeting this year in NATO, their defense spending. Several others are close to it. Canada is way down the list, closer to Slovenia. Our pilots are flying aircraft that often are older than they are. Our submarines are out of date. We face Russia across the Arctic, and Russia is ever more aggressive. So even though, as an academic, I could understand that we would rather spend on education and health care, there are the unfortunate reality of a geopolitical world where we see both Russian and Chinese aggression. And consequently, we have no choice but to develop those defense capabilities, and we have not done so far. So the question will be, will Bill Blair be more persuasive with the prime minister? Bill Blair has uh, a background, as you know, as a policeman. He was the police chief of Toronto. And mm-hmm. he understands that you cannot work magic. That sometimes you have to have the people on the ground. You have to have the expenditures. And that applies to the military as well. So I would not give up on, on this yet. But I think Bill Blair has to step up. Well, was Anita Anand ineffective in any way because she was perhaps being a little too aggressive? I guess my point is, how, and I guess you're answering, asking the same question, what does the change in minister, how will that affect our defense policy? Will they get more attention or will they get left? The article that I just quoted, they're, they're taking the stance that it appears they'll get less attention. Well, I hope that's not the case because we are not... Uh, uh, going to increase or should, we should not increase our military spending uh, only or primarily because of external pressure. We need to do it for our own sake. We have to protect our sovereignty. We have to be able to carry out our mission. We have to equip our uh, military people with the right kind of weapons so they can be effective. They are very well trained. And in the case of Anita Anand, as well-intentioned as she may have been, it seems to me that she spent a great deal of time justifying the failure to step up rather than persuading others in the cabinet, if that was her intention, the prime minister to do so. So I don't think we're moving from uh, a defense minister who was uh, aggressive on spending more to one who's less likely to do so. On the contrary, I think that there may be a new opportunity for Blair, for Bill Blair to step up and say, you know, as a practical individual, this is the reality in the international system. This is what we need to do. This is what we have to do to fulfill our obligations in our alliance, to protect our sovereignty, to do what is necessary for our own military troops. And there's no getting around the fact that you have to spend significantly more. And if that is his intention, 
I think he's got the experience to be very persuasive. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, why would the government replace her? Again, many are having a hard time understanding or seeing the difference between one and the other. You're, you're, you're suggesting that because of his police background, more might be more in common with the military mindset. Uh, I've heard others that say the opposite because, uh, well, anyway. Um, so at the end of the day, do you think this will be better for the military, having Blair? It, it, it's hard to say. I mean, the, the cabinet shuffle has its own dynamic. Yeah. And uh, moving anything on to, to the Treasury Board uh, is something that perhaps uh, was the right kind of uh, fit. So we can try to second guess uh, all of the reasons, and uh, we don't have sufficient information. But uh, what we have to look for is the policy on the ground, the change. We are in the process of re-examining our defense posture. And so as uh, this process goes through, uh, there are the possibilities of seriously dealing with issues that have not been dealt for many, many years, certainly not the past eight years. Even before that, Canada was not uh, stepping up. But during a period when there was relative quiet, or at least we could delude ourselves that was quiet because underneath it there were all sorts of uh, elements taking place. I mean, Russia went through a huge uh, arms uh, spending splurge over a 10-year period, and we were aware of that. Russia had invaded Georgia in 2008. Uh, mm-hmm. It had invaded Ukraine in 2014. So it isn't as if we did not have warning signs. We didn't have those warning signs, but we didn't expect an all-out war. Well, now we face the reality of an all-out war, and there's a possibility of something happening in the case of Taiwan and, and China, which would make Ukraine look uh, uh, relatively small because that would draw in the United States directly, most likely. So we're living in a pretty dangerous world, which means that we need to be prepared. We need to acknowledge that our deterrence has failed. We need to rebuild that deterrence. And I must say I was somewhat disappointed that someone as capable as Anita Anand was not able to accomplish that. There was some improvement in the Canadian military and the spending, but nowhere nearly the kind of very major change that was necessary. So I'm hopeful, and perhaps I would be very disappointed, but I'm not prepared to be despondent uh, just yet because uh, I think uh, Bill Blair is a capable individual, and uh, he needs he needs to do it. And the prime minister needs to understand that the prime minister goes to all of these meetings, and uh, he is told invariably uh, that we are not spending what is necessary. But if you look at the state of our own military, and and uh, you know that when we had to make a decision on how many tanks to send to Ukraine, and we have tried to be very generous with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We sent a total of eight, four at first, another eight, and this represents something like eight tanks represent something like the total of our tank force. You do not need to be a world-class strategist or a military expert to understand something is not right. Mm. R.O. Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, talking about the cabinet shuffle and how that affects our commitments with NATO. Arl, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. 
Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Jonathan emails, it's unfortunate we can't shuffle our mortgage. We can't shuffle our grocery bill. We can't shuffle our gas bill to make things all better like the Prime Minister has. Keep right except to pass.